0: So I thought that I was mad and that talking about this case would make me less mad.
1: But you're more mad now?
0: I am more mad now. I'm ready to burn it down. You can't prove it, oh, oh. You got nothing legit, oh. Welcome to The Docket, episode 121. I'm Michael Spratt.
1: Hi, I'm Emily Tammen.
0: How are you, Emily Tammen?
1: I'm fine. I'm coming off a long weekend, so I'm feeling pretty good. Got a lot of sunshine this weekend. Great. You?
0: (laughs) I was was wondering if you were going to ask me how I am.
1: (laughs) I know how you are, because you had a lot of fantasy baseball and a lot of real baseball this weekend, so you're living your best life.
0: It was a productive weekend. Not only did we make uh, traditional Easter dumplings.
1: (laughs) Yes. You know, in the Cantonese style.
0: Um, but I did two jail visits on Good Friday and Easter Monday. Mm-hmm. Did a fantasy baseball draft. Yes, you did. Which I think I stuck to the draft plan and did quite
1: well. Compared to your previous ones.
0: Um, I also spent $45 US to get Kevin Newman, a baseball player for the Pittsburgh Pirates, a real baseball player, to send a trolley message to uh, our friend Matt Hart um about his fantasy baseball team
1: money well spent if you ask me money
0: well spent (laughs) and um we watched some baseball and we baked uh some stuff
1: we did we baked Well, you baked cinnamon rolls i baked well you baked the cake really i decorated a cake uh what else i think that was about it
0: so fantasy baseball real baseball spending $45 to troll a friend, and baking stuff, and getting in two jail visits.
1: And we watched the season finale of The Great Canadian Baking Show, which just bolstered our baking weekend as well.
0: We sure did, and discovered a new adult cartoon on Netflix uh, close enough about the struggles of uh, 30-something parents realizing they're not cool.
1: Which we totally can't relate to because we're in our 40s. (laughs) Don't
0: wait for a show about that. (laughs) So uh, pretty good, Emily. Pretty good.
1: Good. Well, there's some things that made us angry as well.
0: We're going to talk about that. I mean, um, we were supposed to record a podcast on Sunday, but it was in the schedule. It was in the calendar, but I was ready to let it slide since we were late last time. So it's still going to be two weeks between, even if we skip this one. So I was willing in the spirit of Easter and resurrection and whatever else this holiday is about to let it slide. (laughs) But I couldn't.
1: It's just too much.
0: Um, so we're going to get into that in a second. And, you know, because we're recording this on Monday and we have to, some of us have to go to work and uh, some of us um, have to potentially deal with kids who aren't going to be in school and work.
1: That's correct. That
0: because is a potential thing. COVID is going to hell. Um, I'm not going to really edit this. So I would caution you, Ms. Hammond.
1: To keep the foulest part of my language off the record.
0: I'm not cutting anything out. Not any ums, not any uhs, not not any any mistakes, not any of those clicks that you do every time you, there you go. (laughs) We're not going to edit it. We're just going to get it out uh, and we're going to get to our content in a second. But before we do that, I've got something to say. This episode is brought to you by Eamon Publishing's Criminal Law Series confident in navigating criminal law cases with detailed procedural and tactical guidance from subject matter experts. Each book covers a specialized area of criminal practice, written from the perspective of both Crown and Defense. The series is anchored by the expertise of General Editors Brian H. Greenspan and Justice Vincenzo Rondinelli. To learn more about the series and read a sample chapter from each book, visit imon.ca slash docket. Now, I don't know if you can still read a sample chapter from each book because this is an old ad read. And as I said, I'm not going to cut this out to insert the new one, but um, you should go there and check out some docket books.
1: You should. And maybe based on today's docket um, books, Docket books. Uh, We publish books now as well. Again, not Um, cutting anything out. (laughs) No, but in light of what we're about to talk to, do you have something you want to say? I do. I do.
0: I was going to recommend maybe checking out sentencing. Principles and Practices by Daniel Robitaille and Aaron Wincor, published in 2019, but I would suggest that perhaps this book has something saying, don't plead your client out when you shouldn't be pleading them out, and don't join the crown on a position when you can advocate for a better position because injustice could be the result and you could be left holding the bag, defense lawyer who I won't name.
1: And this just really dovetails nicely into what we're going to talk about today.
0: But I think that it, in all seriousness, sentencing is important. Sometimes clients, despite your best advice, want to plead guilty. But that doesn't mean that you just drop what you're doing and take the easy route. There's still lots of work that you can do after your client is found or pleads guilty.
1: That's right. And so I think, and the thing is like, I think too often, because in the interest of expediency, and people are really busy, like sometimes, especially when there's a joint submission on sentence, um, it just gets sort of treated like a really pro forma kind of activity. And actually, I always remember, and I think I've maybe said this before, but once when I was a federal crown, I remember appearing uh, before a particular judge with a joint position on a, a, you know, a white collar crime case, and and I said, you know, and your honor, the parties are in agreement that it will be like X amount of um, probation. And she just paused and asked me to justify the amount of time. And I realized I didn't really have a good rationale other than, well, it's just what we agreed to. <laughs> and so don't go into court and have your only rationale be it's just what we agreed to.
0: Ooh, off mic. I'm going to guess which judge that is, because <laughs> I think I know. Am I right?
1: I don't know. We'll see.
0: Um, so go read that. And. Do your job, criminal lawyers and crowns. Maybe you can find a, a book called "Don't Prosecute Bullshit Cases." Um, also, an upcoming title by Emond Publishing. <laughs> for our lawyers, not lawyers, for our listeners, Emond is offering ten percent off titles in the series. Just visit emond.ca/docket and enter code DOCKET10 at checkout. So, Emily. I want to tell you a brief story of injustice and my increasing, increasing rage.
1: This case has made us both very mad. And it's kind of been a long time coming to this point in a way because I know you're going to tell the story, but we first read about this story in, I believe it's called the Kitchener Whig Standard. Is that the paper? Or it's did I make it's, that it's the record.
0: Up? It's the Waterloo the record. Uh, <laughs> uh, record. And I want to give a big shout out to uh, Gordon Paul, who is the reporter who first broke this story on March 18th. And that's where I first uh, read the headline, at least. The story was behind a paywall. And I'm sorry, uh, Guelph record, um, Waterloo record, D- didn't subscribe, so I just sort of read the headline, read the what was above the paywall, and got very mad.
1: Which is funny because I was gonna what I was gonna say was the original article wasn't very detailed, <laughs> but now I remember it was that that's what it was. There was a paywall, so it was basically the headline and then just a couple of words.
0: But this is good reporting. The story, the title is "Sexual Assault Victim Fined in Kitchener Court for Breaking Order Protecting Her Identity."
1: That tells you all you need to know to feel rage.
0: And so we'll we'll talk about the details, but I was feeling rage, tweeted about it at the time, and then just uh, a couple of uh, days ago, um, the Toronto Star uh, ran the same story, um, also giving credit to the initial reporting, titled, an Ontario's sex assault victim was just fined $2,000 for breaking a publication ban on her own identity. The case is as bad as it sounds, experts say. And that made me mad. And then I got my hands on the transcript because I thought, there must be something wrong. And so I got my hands on the transcript of the plea, and I texted you today saying we were not going to record because it's our long weekend of rest, but we have to because I am full of rage. I need to come home, watch the Jays games, have a few beers, and then uh, sit down.
1: <laughs> but now we're doing this. so. Tell our listeners, what is a publication ban? Let's start with that.
0: So a publication ban is uh, a procedural protection uh, for witnesses and victims. If you're an accused, you can't get a publication ban on your name, no matter how embarrassing the story is or how much you don't want people to know about it because um, of the open courts principle. In some cases, there is a publication ban on the accused name if and only if identifying the accused could identify uh, a, a victim.
1: That's right. So oftentimes you'll see, for example, for example, in the context of domestic abuse or sexual offenses against children by their parents that in order to protect the children, for example, the parents will only be identified by initial um, because if the name of the parent were known, then that would defeat the purpose of having a publication ban um, over the names of the children.
0: And so in this case that we're talking about, Um, There was uh, a woman who's identified as CL just using her initials She was the victim of a sexual assault uh, by her partner Uh, He was found guilty and he was sentenced. He's not an accused. He's he is uh, An offender. She is not a complainant. She is a victim of a sexual assault Uh, after He was found guilty she sent a copy of the decision to some friends and family by email. So, didn't publicize it, didn't post it on social media, didn't, you know, add his name to a list of bad guys, didn't dox him. Sent this decision about her, about her victimization, and about her vindication in court to some friends and family. And it turns out that one of those people, perhaps, um, Posted it on Facebook or sent it to someone else on Facebook. It it caught the attention of the sexual offender uh, Who then made a complaint to the police? Mm -hmm. The police then investigated cryptically it we don't know much about the investigation but cryptically the facts say in the course of interacting with this victim about something else they questioned her about uh, whether she disseminated the transcript, she said that she had, and then they charged her.
1: Which, I mean, there's definite facts missing there because that raises really important questions about the voluntariness of her statement. Was she, did she know that she was a suspect in an offense when she gave that statement? Uh, most of which is kind of rendered moot by the fact that she ended up pleading guilty.
0: Yeah, they charged her with disobeying a court order, with breaching a publication ban, um, under section 486.4 of the criminal code, which is a publication ban that if the prosecutor or, or victim asks for a publication ban, uh, a judge um, shall impose one. It's not mandatory unless someone asks for one. In my experience, mostly that's been the prosecutor, so I'm, I'm pretty confident saying that the prosecutor asked for a publication ban to protect her And then the police are interacting with her with respect to something else. The the sexual offender has made a complaint to the police that the publication ban has been broken. And they charge her with violating an order meant to protect her because the person who sexually assaulted her complained about it, even though she didn't publish it. She didn't post it anywhere. She just sent it to friends.
1: Yeah. And I mean, just so that people understand sending it to friends is a breach of the publication ban. So, and now I'm not, we'll get to, you know, why this never should have made it back to court. But, but just to be clear, like, you know, the, the publication ban prohibits dissemination of any material that would identify um, the party whose name is protected. And in this case, uh, the transcript or the reasons for judgment or whatever it was, um, identified her by name. Uh, Now, when I first heard about this story, I didn't understand until today when I read the transcript that the offender was the complainant in the publication ban breach. Now, because I assume they have the same last name because their initials end in the same letter, that would most likely explain why his name was is obscured yeah he's and he's
0: a domestic partner right that's
1: right so this is what we were talking about before where if you're going to protect her name you have to keep his name but that doesn't mean that he has any independent right to privacy or right not to have his name publicized it's just a corollary of her right to privacy if he
0: had raped a stranger right, his name, his be name would be there it's he's getting protection because he took advantage of a domestic situation to sexually assault his partner, which is aggravating, an aggravating feature on sentence, but is something that ironically gives him protection.
1: That's right. And so uh, so to be clear, you know, in, on a very technical basis, she did commit the offense of breaching a publication ban.
0: And it doesn't, she wouldn't have needed to um, disseminate it because it's not just public like publicizing it. It's not just, you know, you put it in a newspaper or you post it on a public forum. It is a very broad order that prevents, you know, publication, but also includes broadcast or transmission or dissemination, right? So technically she is guilty and she didn't even need to know that it could make its way to be public. She just had to have the intent to transmit it, um, which she did. And, you know, know that there was a publication order in effect. Yeah. And I mean... There might be questions there because complainants generally aren't in court when publication bans are ordered. But presumably, one would think that it would probably be at the beginning of the transcript in which she was, uh, that she got. That's right? right.
1: And so it would seem, and the way that the facts are set out in the um, transcript of the reasons for on her convic- conviction and sentencing, that what most likely happened is that one of the people that she shared it with shared it with an acquaintance of the accused. Um, probably with a more malicious intent in the sense of um, wanting people to know what he did. Like, when I say malicious, I mean, it, it, that's still a totally understandable thing to do. Um, but, but, it's it, not but she a didn't go, have part in that. She, no, that was like, out
0: of her hands, that's right? That's right. Like,
1: the facts seem... And, and I mean, that's one of the reasons that the definition is so broad, because it can quickly get out of control and become more and more public if it's shared even discreetly among friends. Um, however, it's just to say that, like, she didn't go out, um, from what these facts say, to try to uh, publicly malign her uh, a sexual abuser, right? She, she shared it with basically trusted confidants and friends who had and been supporting people and family so that they would um, ra- basically, es- essentially rather than have to explain what the decision said, and they already know her identity. <laughs> like, this and is the
0: she could have of- sat down with them at her house and told them what had happened, like, and told them what the judge had found and told them, who her abuser was. It's Mm. publication of the judge's reasons. Nothing stops a sexual assault victim from taking you aside and being like, you know what? John Smith sexually assaulted me. This is what happened and he was found guilty of it in court.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think, I think...
0: It's publication of the proceedings of what the judge found of the transcript that's the offense.
1: Eh. I don't think so, because like the media, if there's a publication ban, the media can't sit in court and listen and then go write and report on what on anything I, that would disclose. I the disagree.
0: So like no. as soon as as soon as <laughs> as soon as there's a court publication ban, it means that as a, as a victim, you can never say. Um, so someone's going on a date with the person who raped you and you can never be like, don't go on a date with him. I can't tell you why, but. No,
1: you can say what happened to you. Yeah, he but raped you can't, me. Yes, but you can't say, and this is what the judge found. I don't think. If there's a publication ban ab- around the proceedings, it depends. Like when there's a publication ban over like a preliminary inquiry, for example, you cannot talk about what happened in court. Here, if it's a publication ban that's to protect the complainant's identity, I'm not sure how far it goes, but. I think, I think, yes, you can say this is a thing that happened to me. Um, you know, yes, the offender was convicted, but you, I don't think you can talk about what the judge said. No, but, but it, it depends. you can anyway. say
0: like, John's, you're going on a, on a date with John Smith, you should know he raped me and you should yeah. know he was found guilty of that.
1: Yeah, but in any event, no, none of this really matters because um, the bottom line is that, you know, as we said, technically the offense is committed. However, when you're a prosecutor... And you get a file from the police that says, "Uh, we laid a charge against uh, this person with with this name uh, because she breached a publication ban. When you then find out that the person shared it discreetly within her circle and that the police only ever found out about it because her abuser made a complaint about it, basically to protect his own name, which isn't even the purpose of the publication ban, I think that prosecutor would have had a no-brainer on his hands that there was no public interest in proceeding. And every crown attorney at every single stage of a proceeding right up until the final moments, you know, of the trial has to ask themselves two things. We've talked about this on the podcast before. Is there a reasonable prospect of conviction? One, and two, is a prosecution in the public interest. So, and that that binary assessment expressly contemplates that you could have a reasonable prospect of conviction, but that a prosecution still might not be in the public interest.
0: Let me let's let's finish the story because it only gets worse because you're right. Um, the police have discretion not to charge her. Right. Right. And they should have used that discretion. God knows. I know of cases where police have used their discretion not to charge people with sexual assault when there are when there are grounds to believe that a sexual assault occurred.
1: Yes, that's Like, true. I know
0: that to be true
1: Yes, it for is. a fact. It is very true, and so, a lot of sexual assault complainants will tell you that that is true. So,
0: why didn't they use the discretion not to charge here?
1: It was an opportunity to, like, give her a warning and to make sure that she understood and say, listen, you know, I know that you're not the one that sent it to this person, but the a public... And explain what the publication ban means and say, you know, please be sure that you don't do this again.
0: But they don't do that. They charge her. Uh, the file goes to the Crown's office. The Crown, as you said doesn't divert, doesn't um, drop the charges, doesn't, you know, engage in any collaborative or restorative justice. They prosecute her, but it gets worse because her lawyer pled her guilty and joined the Crown, agreed with the Crown that despite the fact that she's a sexual assault victim, despite, you know, their scale of offenses, right? You could have a very bad theft where you steal hundreds of thousands of dollars from old people and cause them to lose their home and be cast out in the street and and maybe be cold and die. But there's also theft where you can steal a loaf of bread because your family's hungry. And so if we locate this on the scale of offense, it's towards the low end. Yes, it is. She's the victim. It wasn't malicious. It wasn't for profit. It wasn't public. All those reasons. Despite the fact that that it's a, a low end of an offense, the Crown prosecutes her, despite the fact she has no criminal record. The Crown seeks to give her a criminal record, and her defense lawyer agrees with the Crown, and they go before a judge and present a joint position where she pleads guilty, and she is sentenced to a $2,000 fine. It goes on her criminal record, and they both agree that she should have to pay a $600 victim fine surcharge, and she has 30 days to pay that, and the judge accepts that position. Now, before I throw it back over to you, Here's my hot take. And I'm not going to name the judge. I'm not going to name uh, the defense lawyer. I'm not going to name the Crown. And I don't know who the police officer was who charged. But I feel very comfortable saying this Crown attorney, you should be ashamed of yourself for prosecuting this. Defense lawyer, I don't care if she said that she wants to plead guilty. Um, it's your job to, to talk to her. And even if she does want to plead guilty and you get dragged reluctantly, why are you joining the Crown attorney for a jail sentence? A you, fine. A fine. A fine. You, you should be, you should be, even if it's plain that she's guilty, you should be taking this to trial. You should be making them prove every element. You should be representing her for free. You should be bringing constitutional challenges because no matter what you do, no matter how much resources you expend, no matter how obstructions you are in court, it's not going to get worse than this after, after a trial. So defense lawyer, you should be ashamed for pleading her guilty and for joining the crown at a jail sentence. And if you took a penny from her, you should be ashamed as well. And To the judge, judges have to, the the Court of Appeal says that judges have to um, accede or accept to reasonable joint positions that are within the range. They can't get around and start tinkering tinkering around because lawyers should know the file pretty well. As a judge, to accept this without much question, it was a 10-page transcript of, of the plea, without much question, without probing any deeper and accepting this position knowing What we just said is what the judge knew without any question is an affront. And I would be ashamed if you were this judge, you should be ashamed. If you were the crown, you should be ashamed and you should be investigated because this is not professional. And if you were the defense lawyer, you should give a head a shake and you should go and be a real estate lawyer or something because you should not be playing with people's lives.
1: I completely agree with you. Uh, I want to read the opening paragraph of the reasons for sentence, which make it very plain that the judge did fully understand the context. So the judge says, well, Mrs. L, it is an unusual backstory, your set of circumstances to charge, including a charge like this. Okay. So this is unusual. Um, So I, then it says, so I understand sort of the emotional impact being a victim of a crime. I know that a crime such as this, it is particularly personal and people have a reaction to that. That being said, court orders have to be followed, particularly ones that deal with people's privacy. So I'm satisfied that counsel have reached an appropriate resolution which shows the importance of court orders being followed, but recognizes your personal circumstances as well. So I accept the joint position. I will impose a fine of $2,000, plus the 30% victim fines surcharge. charge. So like fully getting, and like making a statement like court orders have to be followed, particularly ones that deal with people's privacy, like she didn't breach anyone's privacy though like if again it's about t- her privacy it's about her own privacy so when you're t- and again i'm not saying that doesn't make it a technical breach of the publication ban but when you're situating it on a spectrum you know you you reference for example the fact that she didn't share it in a public forum she shared it with a few trusted people but she also trusted it with people who already knew her identity so and and knew that it was her husband and everything else so no one's privacy was breached it would be different um, like for example um, even though the publication ban wasn't to protect the husband's identity, but it was covered by a publication ban. So when someone shared that with a third party, you know, for the purpose of his identity being disclosed, that would be maybe like a slight tick higher. But certainly if someone had shared it so that her identity had been disclosed to someone who wasn't already aware of her identity, that would be more egregious. Yeah, if you're
0: doxing her and revictimizing her by publishing her name in the context of very intimate and personal, uh, offenses, right. That, you know, strike to the core of your dignity and privacy and, and, you know, that are just horrible offenses, right? If you were sharing it to dox the victim, to re victimize the victim, that's one thing. But when it's to protect her own freaking privacy.
1: And if I had been the judge there, I would have looked at the crown. I would have looked at the defense. What the judge doesn't explicitly say here is Basically, the Crown and the police have allowed themselves to become instruments in the ongoing abuse of a sexual assault survivor by her former spouse. Like the fact that this complaint originated from (laughs) the accused is the part that I find puts it onto a complete other plane for me because he's actually successfully now used the system to further abuse him. After they've divorced, after they've separated, after he's been found guilty of sexually assaulting her. Yeah, she now has a
0: criminal record and and is stigmatized and owes $2,600.
1: The judge could have, you know, the judge can't make it go away in the sense that once it's there. But there are sentencing tools. And you can read about that in Iman's uh, sentencing. If Um, I was
0: the judge, what I would have done is said, okay, I'm not not prejudging anything. And uh, Mr. Crown, I'm going to give you a chance right now. Tell me the worst, most aggravating facts here. Okay. Have you told me the worst things? Okay. That's all. Okay. Absolute discharge. Victim fine surcharge waived. I'm very sorry, ma'am. Yeah. I'm sorry that, uh, I'm sorry that you're here and I'm sorry about everything that brought you here. Unfortunately, I'm not allowed to just throw this charge out, but what I can do is I can apologize on behalf of the administration of justice and give you an absolute discharge. And uh, that's all I can do.
1: And for people who may not know, an absolute discharge is basically there's no sentence imposed.
0: There's no criminal record. There's no no
1: criminal record. There's no conviction. So a fine, like, yes, a fine is on the lower end of the types of sentences that you can get. But when a fine is imposed, that's because there's a conviction and there's a criminal record. And there's just no... And the thing is, this is not a trivial criminal record to have either. Like, this is the type of conviction that can actually cause a problem at some point in the future, because it's a, it's a finding that you won't follow a court order.
0: It's, it's not good. It's and not so good. I want to go back to, to the conduct of, of the defense because, you know, quite often, uh, clients of mine will want to either go to trial or sometimes plead guilty when I don't think they should. Right. And I can't uh, twist their arm and make them go to trial when I think they should go to trial, right? Lots of times clients say, I want to plead guilty. I want to get this over with to get out of jail just because I want it done, but they have a very good defense. Um, or there's good reason to go to trial. Like I think that we can beat it on technicality or the crown might drop the charges because, of, because it's a minor charge compared to other major charges or because there's court backlogs. It might you know get a, get thrown out for delay or there's lots of reasons why, even though you're technically guilty, you might take it to trial. But if my client says, no, I want to plead guilty.
1: I want to accept responsibility. There's only
0: so much arm twisting you can do, right? But in this case, I would have twisted the arm of my client to the maximum extent possible. I can't imagine that she was on bail conditions that would have made it oppressive, right? Because sometimes if you're on house arrest or if you're in jail, there's an incentive to plead guilty. No, and also,
1: even if she was insistent on pleading guilty... Why would you join the crown well, for a $2,000 fine? And so fine? <laughs> before we get
0: there, right? Like you twist you twist the arm as much as you can within the bounds of your uh, ethical, respond, ethical duties, right? And
1: recognizing the fragile position that your client's in in this case as a basically uh, the victim.
0: I would also not charge her for that, right? Remove every single barrier you can to her, you know, fighting this, which means don't charge the person. I've done that. More than my bookkeeper and my partners would like to know <laughs> um, if there's bail conditions that make it difficult or other factors, you can work to change those. And and even there's if there's no way she's on bail. Well, I mean, she is she's <laughs> like a promise to appear with an no, n- undertaking mean- not to communicate or not to maybe maybe still not to use the Internet, not to you know, communicate by email. There's but there's ways you can fix that. And even if technically she's guilty, I think there are lots of things you can argue here. Make them prove that she knew it. Make them prove that it's a real transcript. Make them prove the voluntariness of her confession to the police. Um, Make them prove all of that stuff. Then bring constitutional challenges to this provision that might be overbroad. Maybe those don't succeed, but I guarantee that when there's two weeks of court time with constitutional challenges, the Crown might be more inclined to use their discretion appropriately. And if after all of that, your client says, I want to plead guilty, you don't need to roll over and join the crown. You could have done your job and advocated. So defense lawyer in this case, even if your client said, I want to plead guilty and you had no choice but to plead her guilty, you could have done your damn job.
1: Yeah, no. And I mean, when you look at the submissions of the defense counsel, they're practically non-existent other than to say, you know,
0: she has no record. This
1: is the background. We accept that she, you know, did this, but didn't do that.
0: It's the laziest work ever, and I hope to God that his services were free, because if you get what you pay for, I mean, there's no value added here at all, because I can't imagine that the Crown was looking for, you know, a penitentiary sentence, and through the skilled advocacy of this so-called defense lawyer, he negotiated them down to a joint position, and, you know, there were some facts that were kept hidden that could have blown up if he didn't do it.
1: And I think it says, like, does it say that she works in retail or something? Like... $3,000 is a lot of money for most people.
0: It is obscene. It is obscene. And there is blame to go around here. You know, the judge said what he should have done. Um, I, I just can't believe, I just can't believe that the, that a lawyer representing her Majesty employed by Doug Ford would prosecute this case like how can you how can you sleep at night?
1: It's so bad. And I mean, it really is like from where we were when we first heard about it to where we are now having reviewed the transcript. It's only just gotten worse at every stage. You know, once we got behind the paywall, (laughs) once we saw the full story and then now this like to see the judge basically say, you know, I get it. Like it can be emotional being like, a, you know, sexually assaulted, but court orders are really important, especially court orders that protect privacy.
0: As an old white man sitting on the Ontario Court of Justice in Kitchener, um, I totally know how you feel.
1: So bad. So anyway, this is, this is our rant that we really needed to have. This is completely egregious. I think, unfortunately, this signals to me that the law needs to be changed. We've heard more and more um, recently of cases of just complainants trying to get the publication ban lifted. Like, because at some point, you know, everybody reacts differently and some people want their story to be out in the public, not only because they want the offender's name to be public, but because they want to tell their own story and they want to be free to do that without worrying about getting dragged in front of the court.
0: And we can have good conversations about, you know, about publication, because I also think it's obscene to publish accused people's names before they've been found guilty and to potentially destroy their lives. And then quite often not to follow up when they're acquitted or God forbid, I've had clients charged with pretty serious offenses whose names get splashed all over the paper and then they are acquitted. And then, the, rep- then you know, the reporter says, well, do you want me to run a story about how they're acquitted? And my client says, God, no, it's been two years. I don't want my name in the paper associated with this again. And so there are real problems with respect to publication both ways. And there are real problems with respect to sexual assault and how that's prosecuted and how that's dealt with. The law at the same time, I think, really does a disservice to, um, to procedural protections to accused through a bunch of the provisions, the new laws that we've talked about in this podcast before about defense disclosure and about, you know, some of those pretrial processes. I think that that sort of does a disservice a lot of times to an accused person often and and often an innocent accused person who has to disclose evidence of their innocence. But at the same time, there are huge problems with the prosecution and how and how victims are treated as well. And so it's when you have decisions like this that are just bonkers, it, it could cause well-informed people to throw their hands up and say, well, we need to get tougher on sexual assault cases, and we need to make the process more victim-centric. And that could swing the pendulum the other way. Instead, what we need to do is have a rational conversation. And the first step to that is having people in the system both police prosecutors defense lawyers and judges who know what the fuck they're doing
1: yeah and i think we also need to make it easier for complainants to apply for and get exceptions to a publication ban or publication bans lifted because it's actually still quite a process it's not just like oh now you can tell the judge you don't want it anymore you need to bring an application in court you have to show that circumstances have changed since the time that the publication ban was imposed like there are all kinds of and again a lot of those are really matters going to, um, like the media applying to have a publication ban lifted. They don't really reflect the experience of the very person whose identity is supposed to get protected. And the thing is, I think, I don't know, but I think it, it, I would like to know whether or not there can be exceptions to a publication ban. Um, limited, carved out. Like maybe a complainant doesn't want their name to be public, but they want to be able to share the judgment with their immediate family, like things like that, right? Because it is a pretty strict and narrow offense. Like, you know, you just basically have to share it with someone. Um,
0: and, and cases are reported that have publication bans on it, but just before they're reported, they're, you know, and you can get them on reporting services, like publicly online on free non-paywalled reporting services where you can get the whole decision, but there's a note up there that says publication ban and names are scrubbed out of it and replaced with initials. And sometimes if there are facts reproduced in the decision that might that might disclose identities, those can be redacted as well. So there are mechanisms that, that can do that. Unfortunately, um, an individual complainant isn't able to really do that themselves.
1: That's right. So... Big miscarriage of justice here, you know, uh, the type of miscarriage of justice that brings the administration of justice into disrepute at a time that, you know, respect for the justice system is at an all time low when it comes to the prosecution of sexual offenses. Uh, In some cases, legitimately, in other cases, less so. But I mean, this is an example of an incredibly egregious breach of common sense, um, conduct taken by the state that's contrary to the public interest. Um, and, you know, I agree with you that all the parties should be ashamed. And I, I really feel for this woman that she was put in this position. And I mean, it is very possible that she said to her lawyer, I just want to plead guilty. I just, you know, and, and the judgment also refers to the fact that there are ongoing and complex family law proceedings. Oh,
0: this will be used against her in family court. Well,
1: this is the thing. And maybe she thought like accepting responsibility and, and, you know, taking her lumps and taking her punishment would better her situation. I don't know. Maybe guarantee- she just didn't have the energy for another proceeding. She went through her trial for the but sexual But I guarantee
0: assault. she didn't say, plead me guilty. I really want a criminal record.
1: But whatever she said, the lawyer could still give total and reasonable effect to her instructions by letting her plead guilty and then making the very obvious case that she should be absolutely discharged. Um, and, you know, let the court wag its finger at her and say, you know, you breached the publication ban. Don't do that again. Um, But the fact that this woman walks away, you know, with a criminal record is, um, and while her family proceedings are ongoing, where there could be issues of whether she'll respect court orders with respect to custody and access of her children and other things. It's just so egregious and awful.
0: So I thought that I was mad and that talking about this case, would make me less mad.
1: But you're more mad now?
0: I am more mad now. I am ready to burn it down.
1: <laughs> well, don't do that because that is arson. And that would be an offense.
0: 2000 Do you know, I represented a client on an arson case once. Do you know what they got?
1: <laughs> a $2,000 fine. A fine. So, yeah. yeah.
0: Anyway, um, happy, happy.
1: Sorry. Hope this is a rage lesson.
0: <laughs> we need to go and, and decompress somehow. How? Watch an episode of Ted Lasso. Oh,
1: gotta rewatch. So nice. I need that non-toxic positivity.
0: Yeah, I just need some. Like, give me another Shits Creek. Give me uh, Ted Lasso. Give me more bacon shows. Give me more bacon. Canadian baking show. More, yeah. more. That's the only Keep thing that's coming. gonna bring my blood pressure down. <laughs> baking and then eating a cake.
1: <sighs> Thank you for listening, friends.
0: Hopefully, you're as mad as we are. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Happy Easter, everybody. Happy Easter. <laughs> Bye. Thank you to Jeremy Fisher for allowing us to use his awesome song, Uh-Oh, as our introduction music. You can check out more at the podcast page at michaelspratt.com, or you can subscribe to the docket on iTunes. If you like it, spread the word. You can follow Emily on Twitter, at Emily Tamman and you'd follow me on Twitter, at mspratt. Thanks for listening. You can't prove it, oh, oh You got nothing legit, oh